What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devoe. before we dive into this week's insanely crazy episode, I promise you this is going to be a good one, folks. I'd just like to thank, and we would just like to thank all of our lovely supporters and sponsors. And that's all of you folks in podcast land, all of our wonderful patrons and all of our wonderful academates at the Bestseller Academy. Thank you all so much. And if you would like to support this show, just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you are interested in joining the Bestseller Academy and getting involved with some incredible, incredible authors, one of the most inspiring places on the planet, you simply pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Now, Mr. Stay, we have quite the interesting episode today. It's going to be a lot of fun, I do believe. It's it's a <laughs> really special on one. Room. It's a really, really special one. It's an author who we've tried to get on the podcast a couple of times before, but due to technical issues, it all went horribly wrong. But I'm glad we waited because she's on with someone who's very, very special. And the story of how they know each other is just extraordinary. I think it's going to be really, really inspirational stuff. And before we dive in with our guests, I would like to ask you, Mr. State. So it was a question we get asked a lot in life and it's a very important question, but who was your favorite teacher? Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to pick a few. Okay. Cause Ooh, I don't think okay. there's just, I don't think it's just one. Cause I, I very distinctly remember uh, Mrs. Godfrey at Duncombe school in uh, Hornsey in London. She was great. She was really encouraging. She gave, cause the, my thing when I was at that, cause I was like eight, eight years old. My thing then was drawing. I was really into drawing. And she gave me art books and encouraged me. And she was, what's really interesting, she's way ahead of her time because North London then, very hip and trendy, very left wing and right on. And she would always refer to people as folks. Didn't matter what your gender was or whatever. And whenever she talked about parents, because she knew there were a lot of people there with like single parents or whatever, she'd say, or they'd be living with their aunts and uncles or, or, or grandparents or whatever. She'd say, oh, come and tell your folks. Way ahead of her time. Loved her. She was great. There was Miss Maloney at Woodville School in Leatherhead because uh, she introduced me to fantasy novels. We we read um, uh, Wizard of Ursi, uh, Ursula Le Guin. And that was my first, a lot of people, it's Lord of the Rings. For me, it's Ursula Le Guin. And again, hugely encouraging when it came to my writing and uh, and all sorts of stuff like that. And then when I went to Thurfield Secondary School, uh, Mrs. Wright was my English teacher and she was terrific. She, she was the one who said to me, why are you writing this American rubbish? Which uh, probably... <laughs> Set me up, sort of maybe, you know, confused me a bit, but actually in the end was quite good advice. And um, uh, Mrs. Hodgkinson, um, my drama teacher, who uh, when I managed to scrape a pretty good GCSE grade and I said to her, I really don't deserve this, do I? She said, no, you don't. Uh, but she was, <laughs> but the, reason she, the reason she said that was because she knew I should have been working harder. I was quite lazy. Uh, in my GCC years, but, um, <laughs> but they were great. I still remember them. I'm, I'm still, you know, inspired by them. Who, who are you? Who are yours, Mister D? Well, again, quite a few, but I think my the one that always stands out for me was a teacher called Mister Holdsworth. He was one of those guys who was really, really firm but fair, yep. an absolute laugh, and he always looked out for you. And he was the kind of guy that he would, if he saw potential in you, he would really work with you. And I think there's a lot of people out there listening today who can probably think back to that teacher, mm-hmm. that teacher that introduced them to either their favorite book, like you mentioned, Mark, or encouraged them in their writing. And uh, it's kind of an interesting lead into our two guests today because th- we've not had this before, have we, Mark? This is, this is just a perfect combo. This is this is a first. Folks, we have not one, but two wonderful authors on this week's podcast. The first is Sarah Moorhead, who 
also writes as S.E. Moorhead, author of Witness X. And Sarah is also a long-standing patron of the bestseller experiment, so we're always grateful to her for that. Born in Liverpool, Sarah has told stories since childhood. Fascinated by meaning, motivation and mystery, she studied theology at university. Over the last 25 years, she's taught at secondary school. Uh, uh, remember that fact, listeners. That's important. Uh, Sarah has a black belt in kickboxing. Let's remember yeah, that remember too. Remember that, Mark, as yeah. well. Uh, she's worked as a, <laughs> a, as a chaplain, established a justice and peace youth group. She's written articles for papers and magazines about her work in education and, and religion. So Sarah's our first guest. Our second guest is Stuart Turton, author of the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the Devil and the Dark Water. Now let's talk about let's talk about Stuart's books for a second. His debut. Seven Deaths, which I've got, I've got, I've got both their books here. Look at that, I've got both here. Beautiful. Okay. Um, Seven Deaths, winner of the Costa First Novel Award, winner of the Books of My Bag Novel Award, a Waterstones Thriller of the Month. It was shortlisted for the Specsavers National Book Awards, shortlisted for the British Book Awards Debut of the Year, longlisted for the Thixton Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year, selected as a Book of the Year by The Guardian, The iPaper, Financial Times and Daily Telegraph, and is currently being adapted by Netflix into a seven-part series. So... As debut novels go, that ain't too shabby. So uh, what connects these two wonderful writers? Well, that's what we're here to talk about today, and it's a heartwarming story. Sarah and Stuart, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi. Hello. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Big energy. That's what we're bringing. <laughs> Big energy. Big energy. <laughs> Now we've got to say, folks, this is the first time. This is the first time that we've had um, a combo act, shall we call it? Which I think is just rapidly going to degenerate into. But Sarah, <laughs> tell us the connection between you and Stuart. So way back in the day, when I was a young, fresh teacher, straight out the box, I had the pleasure of having Stuart Turton in my sixth form general RE class. So I taught Stu way back in Witness. And somehow, wow. in the intervening years, I've grown older than Miss Moorhead. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, I caught up the 10, 15 years between us. And just 10 added years, a, 10 years. Don't be cheeky. I did another 20. I thought all that's happened, but... Horrific. Do you know why, Mark, uh, Stuart, that's why I shave my beard because of the the grey the grey bits. Do you know what I mean? It's like I think it's very I think it's very manly though. I think it's great. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Now, Stuart, you have a bit of an issue though with how you address your former teacher, is that correct? No, mate, it's not an issue. It's only an issue if I had any problem with it. That is Miss Morad. She doesn't have a first name. She wants to be <laughs> to call her by her first name. And that seems patently ridiculous because that is Miss Moorhead. She was always Miss Moorhead. I assume when she got married, it was like partner and Miss Moorhead. That's what the priest said. Like, I don't, it's bewildering to me, this idea that teachers have first names. It's ludicrous. It's, it's the same way that children always think that we live in school and over the weekend we just <laughs> hide in a store cupboard and then suddenly spring out on Monday morning ready to teach again. I think it's this, along the same lines. Actually, my, par my parents were school caretakers and there were a couple of teachers that did actually live like that. Didn't we have a teacher and witness who used to live in his car? I'm pretty sure when his wife threw him out. And he lived in the car for a while and they used to call him homeless second name, you know, say homeless brown or whatever. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I was so checked out of my school that like I would like I would, I would take Miss Morris class, a few other classes, and then I would just leave immediately. And people are like, Have you heard about such and such? And I'm like, don't want to know, I'm out of it, bye, and I'd be gone. <laughs> That well, was... you see, well, now that that summarises. I I do remember. Stuart claims I don't remember him, but I do remember. Doesn't I remember, remember. Doesn't remember me at all. Yeah, honestly, a... honestly, right, at the back of the classroom, arms folded, face like this. Right. Oh what have you got? What have you got to offer? Am I right, Stuart? Look at the state of it. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We've fallen into honestly, the Honestly, honestly, and that must be how many years ago? How old are you now? About uh, forty-one. Right. So sixty-seven. I... So that's at least, that's 25 years, isn't it? That's mm -hmm. about 25 years ago. I was told about that. What have you got to offer? That was your, you know, you didn't say that, but that was your... Um, My demeanour. Demeanour, demeanour. Sarah, Sarah, can can you tell us, I, I want to talk about how you guys got back together, so to speak. <laughs> Something happened on Twitter back in August 2020. Can you take us back to that? Can we just, first of all, sorry to keep interrupting, but like when you just announced that something happened on Twitter in 2020, everyone's going to be like... <laughs> 
Which is, it was a nice thing that happened on Twitter. One of the very few nice things, everybody. Yeah, okay, that, it's just that's like, what makes it remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so there was somebody, somebody I don't know. I had put a tweet on. Um, you know, tell me about your memories of um, a small town nightclub. And when you were young, obviously, we were, I mean, you know, when you're a young teacher, you're literally about four years older than some of the kids you teach. Um, and anyway, we were a bunch of young teachers and we used to go to this place in Widnes called the Top of the Town, which we nicknamed Toppers. You used to say to any Widnesian, Toppers. And uh, so this this woman, said, oh, I, and I just said on, the tweet, on, a, on a tweet, well, I remember this place called Top of the Town in Widnes that we used to go. And then what happened then, Stu? Did you say? I was... I have absolutely, so I've been following Essie Moorhead because I generally, like, if you're an author, I will generally automatically follow you because writing a novel is like climbing a mountain, so I'm in awe of anyone who's ever done it. So I've been following uh, Essie Moorhead, the author, and just, like, seeing a tweet here and there, and all of a sudden this conversation comes up that's, you know, top of the town, top of, I used to go to Toppers, and I was like, that's impossible. That's, like, that's ridiculous. Why would she possibly have gone to Toppers in Witness? And I immediately <laughs> leapt onto that and was just like, I can't remember but how then, I then, Stu, I Googled Stu, right, because I I, I, rec- I sort of knew the name Turn and it's, it, it rung a bell. I thought it was a Viking word, because you know the word Witness is, is, is a Viking word for the wide nose of the Mersey, which is why this is sign language for Witness, not because it smells like... Because <laughs> it does, the factories, it does smell very strongly. So that's the wide nose. So I thought that must be a Viking name. I wonder if that rings a bell. Found out later on, only but it was a Yorkshire name. Some Yorkshire student, did you know that? Always teaching, always learning. And so I looked him up on the on the wiki, or uh, and uh, he said he, he went he was from Witness, and I was like, no, this can't be true. So over to you, Stu. Uh, and then it, yeah, and then we start swearing at each other as is usually the way. We won't be doing that in this podcast, but I it just clicked because I'd always this is ridiculous because I've never met any other Miss Moorheads in my entire life, right? And I've been following Essie Moorhead, and I'd never it never occurred to me that this Essie Moorhead was Miss Moorhead from my school who taught me who'd been my favourite teacher. Like those two things had never entered my mind, and then all of a sudden it's. Moorhead, top of the town, witness. This is, and then I just asked. I was like, "Are you Brilliant. effing Miss Moorhead from <laughs> <laughs> from uh, Peter and Paul High School?" To which she responded, "Yes, I effing am." And then we just got rolling from there. And it was, I swear, like we'll get into the ramifications of her being my teacher and all the rest of it. But like forever and ever and ever, I've wanted to say thank you. I've wanted to say thank you. Cause like a lot of seven deaths, the first novel and bits of the second novel, even like the way I look at the world, the way I think about things, the, 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 the thought I want to pour into things comes from those classes. Cause that was the first time in sixth form that anybody had opened the forum up and said, I'd quite like to hear what you have to say about this actually. Or I, I'm generally interested to see what you have to say. Like witness, I thought I'm inspired, but like, Witness isn't that town. Witness was working class parents rushing here, there and everywhere, rushing between jobs. Like everyone was very busy and kids were just something that you had and you raised as quickly and as efficiently as possible. It wasn't a kind of sit down and have a chat with them about philosophy kind of place. And school wasn't either. There was an expectation of certain kids. They would go in this way. They would come out that way. A lot of kids were ditching out when they were 16. There wasn't a lot of high ambition around me, should we put it that way? And to have somebody just be like, hey, what do you think about the afterlife? What do you think about... Uh, justice what do you think about all these big topics it was incredible so it became the only class in school that I had I wanted to go to that I had any interest in being in the rest were just like on my way to going to university because and I've said this elsewhere my only interest in witness was leaving it as quickly as possible like I did not want to be there growing up I had no interest in that town whatsoever I just wanted to get my education and be gone and then all of a sudden there's this class and I'm like oh wait there's something here that I'm actually enjoying this is interesting and it's interesting also because Witness is quite a small town. It's very insular. And, I, you know, I've gone in as a scouser. I'm quite gobby, in case you haven't noticed. And then for six months, the kids would just look, the kids would just look at you. You know, you come into the classroom and here's an outsider and how do we adapt to her? And eventually they kind of warm up to you. Um, and I think, you know, the beauty of RE, I mean, uh, because I don't think if I couldn't teach RE, I don't think I would teach anything else, is that exactly right that, you know, um, we, we treat everybody the same and we're very interested in big ideas. And I think what Stuart needed at that time was just 
sort of like tapping into the philosophy of it, really, into, into philosophy, into big questions, into big ideas, and into big, ex, you know, exploring the big ideas. And, and I, I think that's why, you know, you might have enjoyed it so much. But it's also, it is so amazing. Uh, I mean, actually life-affirming to, to hear somebody say that something you did for, you know, maybe once or twice a week, 25 years ago, actually had an impact on me that made me produce this. And I just cannot tell you what that feels like. I, I can't, it's like raising this amazing kid or, you know, just winning an award. It actually, Stu, feels like winning an award to me because teaching is a very, very difficult subject, a difficult um, career. And I'm pretty sure that we're the only species who teach offspring other than our own. Uh, and to be able to get feedback, because you don't often get feedback, you normally just get 16-year-olds go, well, I'll just do that and got me over, you know, that kind of thing. And it can be really, um, you know, it can be really difficult at times. Um, and then when when children grow up and they look back and they think about, um, you, you know, we all do it with our parents. I think we, we look and we really understand and we see things. And, and you know, for, for somebody to grow up and then come back to you, and it's just the most amazing feeling in the world. And the only thing is, I'm really, really annoyed that you stole all my ideas and wrote that bloody award-winning book, and I haven't written any decent books yet. That, that's quite annoying. <laughs> you have, in fact, written an amazing book, but I did steal all your ideas, so I will cop to that. They weren't um, my ideas. That there are ideas in the ether. They're not my ideas. I just presented them to you. You know what they say about you know education. You know they show you where to look. They don't show you what to look at. So mm. I, I just pointed you in the right direction, Stu. You, you're like one of the smartest kids I ever taught. Even though obviously you're not a kid, but obviously you are a kid still mm. to me. I mean, you know, your brain did all the work. But I think I feel really lucky just to have introduced you to some very very interesting ideas. And but that brings us on to the other thing as well that happened in Miss Moorhead's class. It wasn't just about the ideas and it just wasn't about the Miss Moorhead was the teacher who took an interest and was like, actually, you're you don't speak much, but when you do, you're quite bright, aren't you? And I was like, Yeah, because again, I had my head down just trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. I didn't want to be noticed, I didn't want anyone to pay attention, I just wanted to be gone. So I would come in every day, I'd do my lessons to like the bare minimum of effort that would get me my B's so I could go into university. And I was like, but then suddenly Miss Moorhead's just like, hang on a minute no, you stand up and say something because I'm interested. And that was, again, it was interesting. It was like, oh, good, somebody's actually looking at me. And then you get all that confidence then. You get confidence to speak. You get confidence to drill into your own ideas. Somebody isn't shutting you down when you're talking. So it made a huge, huge difference. Do you think, Stu, that you're, you, that was the moment you kind of discovered your voice as an author? Were you already writing at that point? Or was it really coming out from school that you started taking an interest in in being an author mm, no I don't think so me and Miss Morden have talked about this previously because actually when we reconnected over Twitter I immediately jumped on a on a train and this was like pre-lockdown number I don't know what we're in now 14 or something <laughs> um it was just in between that when they were giving us like two weeks to come up for oxygen or something so I leapt on a train to come and see her and say hello and we went for a coffee and a lunch and just had catch up the two things are very different. I think what Miss Moorhead gave me was the thing that I would go on to write about, but I still didn't know what I was doing with myself. Like I still didn't know I was going to be an author. I still didn't know um, what I, up until that point, I kind of assumed I was going to be a lawyer or study law because again, big ideas that you could drill down into and then you could have a big argument with somebody. That was kind of appealed to me. So um, yeah, so that's kind of what I thought I was doing, but I was always on the fence about it. I wasn't sure. The writing came to me much, much later. I Literally, I don't think I, I didn't sit down to write anything seriously until I was about 22. And then by that point, yeah, all this stuff that you've been talking about, all this, what am I interested in? What do I want to write about? Well, it was Agatha Christie novels because I loved Agatha Christie and that for me was formative novel structure and mystery structure. And then well, what am I going to fill it with? I'm going to fill it with the stuff I loved from school and 21, 21's nothing, 21 nothing. years of experience. You think you're a grown up and you're like, you're still the smallest of small children. It's incredible. I'm looking back being a very old man with my own daughter. So you're drawing on experience to write about what have you got. You've probably got what you did in school and all the stupid stuff you did in the three years since you've left university. That's kind of what you got. So it was natural to me that I would fill the book with that philosophy and with those ideas and with those questions. But I didn't come to write Seven Deaths. I mean, I, I wrote something exceedingly terrible when I was 21 and dropped it very quickly. And I didn't start seriously writing until I was about 30. 
33 or 34. That's when I kind of picked up. But I was a journalist in between, so I was writing. I just had no interest in novels necessarily. And Sarah, with the with the with the connection that you you had with Stu, I mean, you mentioned one of the biggest things is that it's very rare, a bit like an author, actually, it's very rare to get feedback, isn't it, from yeah. the people that you that have been part of the work that you've done. Um, how I mean, uh, how how did it feel for you as a I mean, in terms of if you put it with everything else that you've achieved in your life, getting that kind of feedback from Stu, what what did that mean to you? on a par with some of the other kind of big big parts of your life? Well, well, what you have to understand is that, I mean, I, I teach RE and I'm a person of faith. And so for me, teaching is uh, very much a vocation. Um, it's very much a vocation. And when your job is that meaningful, then you can put an awful lot of yourself into it. And therefore, um, uh, you know, it's very, um, it's very valuable. It's a very valuable, important thing to do. And it can be very costly on a personal level and in energy wise and in worries and, and, you know, all these other things. So when, when somebody tells you what, you know, affirms you in the way that Stuart's affirmed me and the very fact that we're so lucky to talk about all these ideas and to share this kind of philosophy and these faith ideas and whatever, then it, what it means is it validated my choice as a teacher to become a teacher because I realized that things I wanted to achieve when you're very young very idealistic and you want to change the world and you want to change people's minds and you want to you know you know move hearts and minds then that can wear off after 20 years sometimes I'll tell you, it could wear off a bit quicker than that for most teachers right <laughs> yeah you know and I mean some, there's something like a quarter of teachers now will leave within the first two years because it is very demanding but I was lucky, as I say, because it was a vocation and because there was, it was very meaningful to me. So, yeah, of course, it, it, it's validated a really important part of my life choices. So I, I think that's really important. Can I, mm. um, uh, Sarah, you put, um, that folks, we'll put a, a link to a thread on Twitter where Sarah reveals all this and you can see the convers- the sweary conversation from Sarah <laughs> and Stu online. But uh, you sent me a photo, which I think is part of the Twitter thread, which is Stu's dedication. He wrote. Uh, yes. a dedication to you in seven deaths are you guys okay if i read that out because i think it's quite pertinent to this so he's put to sarah back when you were miss Moorhead, you told a 16 year old me that re wasn't about prayers it was about big questions what happens to us after we die what do we deserve from our life what do we owe others i didn't have any answers for you i still don't but i never stopped wondering you changed me. I ended up writing this book. I never said thank you, so thank you, which is just lovely. But yeah. that, that, that thing of never stopped wondering, that's very much fueling the tank for writers, isn't it? That kicking off, because that I think to be a writer, you have to be curious about the world. You have to be curious about people, don't you? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when people say, you know, one of the biggest questions, one of the most frequently asked questions of an author is where do you get your ideas from? I just go, Look out the window, look in the newspaper, look on the television, look in your best friend, listen to conversations. There are massive ideas and love and trauma and loss and excitement and curiosity everywhere. It's just brimming. The world is full of life, you know, creations full of excitement and ideas and extremes. So, how you know, as somebody who loves words, how can you not respond but to put it down in words? That's the other thing as well, isn't it? When people... You get people occasionally on panels and come in and asking about being an author. And if they, I'm happy to answer those questions, but there's two things that are fundamentally true. One, if you ask me where my, where you get your ideas from and you want to be an author, you're probably never going to be an author because ideas are not the problem. They're just not. Like an, I, an author is just a naturally curious human being. An author is going out into the world and getting curious about things and then storing it somewhere deep inside and then it comes up when you need it. It's not... It's not something you're trained to do. It's not something you're taught to do. It's the innate part of the, as Miss Moorhead, it's a vocation. Like writing is as much of a vocation. So you can't, that question, again, where do your ideas come from? That's not the problem. Time is the problem. Time to get all these ideas into paper. Time to dig into them, to do them justice, to do what you need with them. That's always been my thing, that like, I will talk to you all day long about structure and learning to write and how learning to pace a novel and learn all these technical things. But the very act of being an author is basically three in eight things. And a huge part of that is curiosity. And so when I go into, I didn't know I wanted to be an author. I didn't know I wanted to write. But going into Miss Moorhead's 
class and having curiosity be something that was the focus of the class, that is rewarded, that was engaged with. Again, especially in witness, where curiosity wasn't the order of the day, right? Like it was really sort of like prepare yourselves for whatever sort of like career you're going to have beyond this. And most of those careers was like quit school and go and work in your warehouse or a chemical factory or whatever was around us, make some money and go out into the world and be of use. Curiosity wasn't a thing that a lot of my friends necessarily had. And so to have this venue, to have this forum for curiosity, yeah, it was incredibly valuable to me because it, it wasn't a nuisance anymore, right? It was possibly the first place where me asking questions and me wondering about things wasn't seen as a complete waste of time. Yes, and I, I've come back to this idea about curiosity and what you just said there, Stuart, you felt as though, not that there's something wrong with you, but that you felt as though you had something going on that was different and I'm starting to think the longer I get into writing that I think writers are just neurologically different mm. I think I think there's things going on in our brains that um you're right we do take ideas and we do we do store them we do need to express them we do see things slightly differently we do probably you know what I think it was Graham Greene who said we have a uh, a slither of ice in our hearts because mm. we can observe um, you know, uncompassionately at times because we're taking it all in. That curiosity can be can just be a bit different. And when you do have that way of being inside yourself and a calling to writing, if you like, you can feel a little bit different and you can feel a little bit that there's something going on and, and is there something wrong with me? And then you start writing and then you, you, you know, you you just start blossoming, 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 can't even say the word, blossoming. And, um, you know, for me as well, I have, uh, and I'm pretty open about it, I have uh, anxiety disorder and um, it, it's kind of well under wraps at the moment, but there can be difficult times. And now looking back as an adult, I realise I think that's part of my uh, writer brain because it's got you kind of got like a high powered laser going on in there and it's doing stuff and it, it needs to get out and it needs to express itself. And when you're not writing, when I, you know, Kafka, uh, uh, an unwriting writer is a monster causing insanity. You know, all your brain power is going off and going off. And unless you direct it somewhere, unless you direct that laser, then it can cause havoc. So do you think there's an awful lot of things? I think the, the I mean, I think the brain's absolutely fascinating anyway, as you as you'll know if you read um any of my books, but I think um the writer's brain is a really interesting place to be. Yeah, because I always liken it to when I've got a novel, there's only basically in the last sort of five years, there's only been about two months where I didn't have a novel on the go. And the bit of my the so that novel is always perched somewhere in the back of my head. It's always been thought about, even when I'm talking to my loved ones and sitting down and eating my dinner and you know going out to parties and drinking with my friends there's still a bit at the back of my head that's noodling over plot that's oh, noodling yeah. over the novel it's always there it's a song it's just in the background it's an earworm that you can't ever get rid of and it is maddening and it's noticeable that when I stop writing for those two months between novels one and two I slept so much better I just like <laughs> I was healthier I just went out into the world and did other things I was more fully engaged I'm very sort of when I talk to people Words can sometimes be difficult to come by. I'm sometimes like a bit addled, like I just because there's another bit of my brain, like 70% of my brain that's off doing something else all the time. So true. That is so true. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very strange. So if I didn't have a novel at the end of it, I don't know what people would make of me because now it could just be written off like this beard and this stupid hair and the glass. It can all be written off as an author. Oh, he's an author. That's fine. Yeah, he's a bit, <laughs> bit weird with the furries, isn't he? It's absolutely fine because I'm an author. But if I didn't have that, I'd just be a strange man wandering things out, muttering to myself, exactly. I suspect. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about not being able to string a sentence together because sometimes, you know, as you say, we... We, we can write it really eloquently but then you sometimes you cannot use the words and, and my husband says to me use words sentence use words and I, I'm a writer not necessarily a speaker you know I can write things down but sometimes as you rightly say when you know and I call it bubblegum for the brain my brain is doing something and it keeps me out of trouble you know it's it's there you go when I've got my novel going on I'm calm I know what I'm doing there's something going on um, and it stops me. It stops me worrying. So I, I call it like a bubble gum for the brain. Yeah. It's fascinating listening to both of you because I think you've just validated the entire world of authors listening to this podcast. I'm like, mm. that's me. That's yeah. me. And it's so refreshing to hear mm. you put it in such a way. And and also to hear your kind of different perspectives, which are which are obviously very similar as well, based on the experiences you've had. But uh well, I just, I, I think it's absolutely right. I don't think I've ever met an author who's not anxious because I think we have that 
empathy for other people. We're used to putting ourselves in other people's shoes. Yes. We, we always try and think of things from the other point of view because that's just what we have to do as a writer when you're you know writing a scene or whatever. Okay, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? What do they want from this scene? You know, what are they? What, what are their desires and. And once you st- once you open that door, it's um, you're letting in all kinds of weird stuff. And like mm-hmm. Stu was saying, I will I I will be sitting, you know, at the dinner table, and I'll, they'll catch me staring into space. And they now know my family now know that that's story brain ticking mm-hmm. over. You know, they've learned to recognize that. They've learned to know that when that door's closed, you know, that's when I'm. Um, I'm writing and, and staring off into space, and it's, it's something I did a lot at school as well. Um, but it's uh, it's it's you know writing, telling stories is kind of it's a bit of a you know, it, it's creating empathy and and giving it a form. It's mm. saying to people, okay, here's someone on a journey. Here's someone who's going to change, and they're going to have all sorts of challenges. They're going to have all sorts, of, and it can be you know genres, a thriller, science fiction, whatever you want it to be. But I think ultimately, storytelling is is human, you know. Taking human anxieties, taking human worries, taking human stories, and and giving them a form, and uh, that's what I love about it because it's the riddle that will never be solved as well. That's the other thing. We've all got our own perspective and, and take on things. Did you hear about that judge in America who actually gave um, instead of giving some boys? I think I think they've been involved in, in racism, and um, he gave them a stack of books to read, and he said, <laughs> "This is what I'm going to do for you because this is going to teach you empathy." Mm. And I mean, and I think, again, partly as a person of faith and partly as a writer, I think that empathy is the highest human um, quality. I think it's the absolute highest human quality. I think it's something that we should aim for. So I think as writers, we're really involved in something very, very special as well. Very special. Yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely wonderful forward thinking. I'd like to ask you both a bit about your actual book journey as well. Now, Sarah, we've, we've actually journeyed with you. For, for how many years is it now since you've been part of the the BXP team and the patrons? Well, at least four. It's taken me four bloody years to get on here. I'm finally <laughs> on. I'm finally on. But only because I know Stu Turn. It's not because you want me. I know Stuart. I'm just I'm just a donkey to your Shrek. I know. <laughs> she doesn't even remember me. Doesn't even remember I me. I do. I'll tell you why I remember. i remember you because I am pretty convinced. Talking about big ideas that I taught you about metempsychosis. Metempsychosis is when one soul uh, transmigrates from one body to another body. And I think that's possibly a big idea in the seven deaths. So I think I do. And I can see you in my head. You're a lot slimmer then. Do you like your little skinny skinny boy? boy Yeah, I was. I was like a little pencil. Oh, bless you. What what did you call that, Sarah? What was the word for that transferring? uh, so metempsychosis, metempsychosis is, you know, when a, a soul goes from one body to another. And I think that's sort of where Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, um, you know, there's, there's very much something like that in it, I'd say. How did you get from metempsychosis from I'm I'm just a donkey to your Shrek? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's the best quote of the show so far. But Sarah, let's talk. Let's talk about. So four years. That's the title of the show. That's the title of the show. That's it. Thank you very much, Sarah. We're always listening out for it. Yeah, Mark's, Mark's the pro at picking it. But um, Sarah, I'm um, fascinated because you've been part of the BXP team for four years now. I have, we, yes. We journey yeah. with you, and I specifically remember a post not that not that long ago um, where you you were celebrating because one of the big things we always talk about is celebrate your successes. Yeah. Tell us when something yeah. great happens. Tell us about that moment when Witness X uh, hit Amazon. Oh, yeah, well, it it was just, it, I think it was again, was it because of you, Stuart, was it because of, I think I've got two peaks, you know, on your, your um, Amazon Kindle sales, and one is after Stuart and I reconnected on uh, on Twitter, and suddenly you see this massive spike because everyone thinks, you know, we're pals, but then the other time was, we mean when I got into The Guardian, somebody had, had written into The Guardian for um, readers' favourite books of 2020, and um, and I got in there. Somebody wrote, you know, something lovely about about Witness X and and how good it was, and and my book spikes, and I got to about four hundred and ninety. In fact, I know specifically four hundred and ninety six in the Kindle charts, and I just felt like a goddess. To be honest with you, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Can I sorry just to interrupt? Go back to the. Um, it's interesting. You said you always encourage people to sort of like celebrate the successes along the way. I can't do that. I don't have the 
the capability to do that. And I think I've talked to a lot of other sort of working class Northern writers. It's quite hard because you're expecting, you're waiting for the fall. You're waiting to be stood on at some point all the Mm. time. So all the way through this, no matter what happened, I'm constantly like, I don't solve Everyone in my family popping champagne. I'm like, put it back in because (laughs) we've still got to do this next thing. What are you doing? Yeah, but you know what, Stu? Do you know the other side of that? The flip side of that coin is the resilience. Because mm. my I've had a real roller coaster. I've had a lot of ups and downs. And I think again that the flip side of kind of maybe not celebrating too much is being really resilient. And I am so determined, you know, to get there and, and to make to make it work that I've t- I've taken quite a few knocks and brushed them off and got up and got mm. on with it. So I think they're definitely the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and you're not alone, Stu. The very reason why we have to say out loud on this show, tell us when something great happens, even big or small wins in the academy that we run. We have a forum dedicated to big and small wins. And like, if somebody said, I wrote 200 words the other day, and we're like, <laughs> brilliant, you know, and somebody else said, I finally pu- finished, I, I wrote the end, you know, and so there's complete extremes, but it's because writers generally, and I think we could say human beings generally, are very bad at um, not or, or, or unable to stop and celebrate those those moments and without going too too much into the world of re sarah life is about having to stop and enjoy the journey at moments and acknowledge where we're at because otherwise we just go through that well through i think it was a plato time. was a plato said uh, you know life on reflect is not worth living i'm not sure it was plato but yeah i think reflection and uh gratitude massively important I think with um, because I I have a working class background as well, and there is always you know that imposter syndrome, and you're waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and go, no, you're not an author, mate. Go, Mm. go, go. That there's the door, you know. So that there is that there is that anxiety, you know, and it 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 is all part of that makeup. But um, one of the things I love about social media and the online community that we we've got in the academy on the bestseller experiment is we do you know cheer each other on and it's so difficult yeah. to find that online and it's um i mean like you Stu, i was if you go back to the beginning of this podcast i couldn't and i still find it difficult to celebrate i'll finish a draft it'll be like okay great done that on to the next thing let's keep mm. going let's keep going let's keep going but um mr d has got under my skin these last <laughs> four and a half years <laughs> in a way that i find very disturbing i'm a much more cheerful <laughs> cheerful and optimistic person and i'm I, i'm still not still not totally sold on it but yeah is this why you changed your name to mark because it used to be like yeah he's part part of my cult yeah in fact if you want i've got i've got a spare mark uh turton uh badge if you fancy joining after the show but that's yeah. true we're, we're gonna stop and celebrate though because Mark mentioned before we started this interview something pretty phenomenal, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge what's happened with with your book, um, Seven Deaths of Even Harcastle, Netflix series. Mm. Tell us now. Tell us. Take us back because I know there's been quite a story with this book, mm. um, but take us take us back to to that moment where it became. Like it was real because we know that sometimes there's rumors going around. It's oh, it may or may not happen. But the moment you actually found out it was going to happen, how, how did that feel? Um, it God, I'm awful at this. It felt fine. It was okay. It was you know, I like money and they're going to give me some, so that was awesome. <laughs> I it's not. I know it's what everybody wants, but if I thought seven deaths would make a good television series i would have written a television series so the idea that somebody else has taken it away from me and they're going to write it i'm completely divorced from it i don't Mm. feel it doesn't it's not me it's not a part of me it's not something i'm emotionally attached to i give it away to see what someone else could do with it so again it comes to that big highs and lows thing I'm happy that it's gone away because that was for me, I invest totally in whatever I'm working on, but once it's gone, it's gone. I don't think about it a day longer. Like, so seven deaths was a book away. So I, it's dead to me and all the adaptations of it are dead to me. There's something else. Um, What's not dead to me, as I say, and this never gets talked about enough. There's an economic reality to being an author. It's lovely being an author. You can pat yourself on the back about it all day, but you need to earn money because money is the thing that allows you to focus on it full time. It allows you to sort of justify carrying on doing it when that impulse dries up some days. Um, This adaptation 
gives me some security to, you know, have a nicer house and sort of like buy shoes for my daughter and, you know, just see the, all the hard work because seven deaths was, I gave up a lot for seven deaths. I was living in another country. I just met my girlfriend who is now my wife. Uh, six months into meeting, I was like, we've got to leave Dubai. We're working. We've got to leave these amazing jobs. We have this amazing apartment we've got and go back to England and live in London because this is a very British book and I need the class system and I need rain and I need gloomy people. Um, I, I, we put a lot on the line for it and we were living on no money for about a year and a half, two years while I wrote it. If it had not been successful, I couldn't look back on that period as successful. I couldn't look back on the fact that I'd written a book as because I gave up so much to do it. It would have felt like a step backwards. It would have felt like a leap in the dark that had hit a wall. So yeah, I I mean, not to be too glum about it, which I'm hoping I'm not, but like it's it's great that it's happened. It's great that it brings the book and the story to more people because I'm fantastically proud of that story, but it's not mine. It's not something that I am personally attached to. Mm. But also, I think that tells you an awful lot about what we do as writers. I mean, you know, a book's a two-way thing. It's you write it and put it out there, and then it's for the reader to interpret and express and understand and take it further. And that's just that's the nature of what we do. You, you have it and you give it away. It's like a, it's like a child. It's like having a child, and you you do your best and you, you bring them up and you give them a foundation, and then they're off in the world. And whatever happens, then it is really you know out of your hands. Yeah, I was I was kind of think of it as like a, a you know your, your child leaves home with a backpack on and they go off traveling around the world. You've no idea where they're going to go. Yeah. You've no idea idea who they bump into, who loves them, who can't stand them, and very occasionally you might get a postcard sent back <laughs> yes, saying, yes. "Hey, guess what? Yeah, that's yeah. what you asked you to." Yeah. to exactly. I mean, you're my, you're my postcard. Yeah, you're, you're, my, po- yeah. you're my postcard. <laughs> yeah, sounds <laughs> like an American love film. They're yeah. like, you com- you complete me, you know. <laughs> don't, don't swear on the postcards, Stu. Whatever you do, do not swear on the postcard. Don't put the... Because that's the other interesting thing. Like, it's funny when novels go out into the world, right? Like, the second one, Devil, so that one's been optioned now, right? And if that one comes onto the screen, I would be much more involved with that one. I'll be writing scripts for that and I'll be except producing that. So, like, that's a weird one because that's going into the world and I've had to sort of, like, purposely keep hold of a little bit of it because it may be useful to me quite soon. But the only times otherwise when the novel goes into the world is when somebody comes back to me and says, actually, I read this book and I needed it at this time. It did a thing for me. Like I was feeling this and it really helped. And that is incredible because that was obviously not the purpose of the novel. That's just the power of all novels. So that's kind of the only other time when I'm like proud of these things. It's funny, isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Stu, which I find fascinating is I know that there's occasions when things go to America and they have to do a name change. So my favourite band, Air, I think they ended up being Air the Band in America. That's how they were known. <laughs> but I noticed that your novel in America is called Seven and a Half Deaths mm. of Even Half Castle rather than The Seven Deaths. Like, what? where did that come from? How did you get an extra half? Uh, because we – there was a very long story, which I'm going to try and compress the best way I can – but when the novel was originally bought in the US, um, my editor truly believed in me, but the company behind her had not read it. So they bought it for about 25 pence and then were just going to put it out. And then the rest of the company read it, really liked it, suddenly got quite excited about it and was like, what about if we market this book instead? And that's <laughs> kind of the way the conversation went. So to do that, they wanted more time. So they delayed it for about six or seven months so they could get some marketing lead up and start thinking of what to do with it. And in the intervening time, a book came out in the US called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which you could not, it's one of those things. It's a real incredible freak occurrence. Um, We don't, we as authors don't know each other. Um, We'd never conversed. There was nothing in the air. It was just, we had these two incredibly similar titles and something about the way the US sells its books, which I still don't fully understand, um, means that bookstores are incredibly hesitant to have two novels with similar titles in the same bookstore because it can adversely affect the sales of either one of them. So they wanted a change. Um, and we spent two or three months just going around in circles, looking for like names for this book. And the problem is I we'd already come up with the perfect name for this story. There couldn't be a better, there is no better title for this book because there's a the clue to the entire thing, like spoilers ahead. So please stop listening right now for three seconds. 
three. It's just that like the clue to the entire thing is in the title of the book, right? The title of the book is a double entendre. It's doing it's doing a lot of different things. I couldn't get a better title. And we were getting increasingly desperate and the titles were getting increasingly terrible. And that's the way desperation goes. It was like, now it's going to be the everlasting life of, Eve, of Evelyn Hardcastle. And you're like, well, have you read the books? That's very clearly not what happens to her. <laughs> I, it was just, it was terrible. And eventually the CEO of my publisher in the US just got bored. I think that's literally what happened. I think she was so sick. I've seen emails <laughs> pop up on her phone with like people suggesting titles and other people saying that's a bad title and then a new terrible title being that she was just like, no, this is done. We're not doing this anymore. It's another seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Good night, everybody. And that was it. And that's what we got. And uh, for a title that was supposed to sort of like, you know, wipe away all confusion, I can tell you exclusively, it very much has not worked. It <laughs> has not in any meaningful way stopped the confusion to the point where on Twitter, I routinely, I don't know if you guys do this, but I'm a sucker for just like searching for my, like, you know, the, the things that at you are the supposed, things you're supposed to look at. I just look for like the book titles coming up because I can see the terrible reviews as well because they're always kind of funny. <laughs> so the amount of people who are just like, the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, what's that about? Like, why would they ever choose to do that? That's insane. Like, we were just sat there being like, huh, this will screw them up. Um, but they, I, the best part about this story is that I was at a festival a couple of years ago. Lovely old man came up to me and he had in his hands the seven deaths of Evelyn Hugo, the seven uh, seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And he bought the three thinking they were a trilogy for his granddaughter <laughs> in love mystery novels. God bless him. And he, I explained it to him and he still made me sign all three books. <laughs> like... Well, I've heard that The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo is excellent, so I think his granddaughter was probably very happy. So it all worked out in the end. It's a great way of selling more books in some ways, isn't it? I yeah, well, we've talked about it in the past. Like The author of that novel, we had a little Twitter conversation where we agreed to always like have slightly similar names, titles for our books going forward. Oh, lovely. To carry on the tradition, but sadly we never got around to it. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant excellent stuff oh my gosh and so sarah what's in the pipeline for you coming up what are you working on right now so i am in a great place at the moment i've been in a bit of a dodgy place but i am now with my fabulous new agent ed wilson so i'm really excited i've got someone who's in my corner and really you know is fighting for me and and, and um so i'm looking forward to that i've just finished a book um, and we're on editing, um, so hopefully that will come out maybe within the next year, and you will see me win many, many awards, like my my Stuart Turton, my ex-pupil Stuart Turton, you'll see me peaking, reaching a peak, becoming world famous, writing books with titles like other people, and, and arguing <laughs> over the half. <laughs> you know, you've just got to keep hopeful. You've got, you've got to have a vision. You've got to see, you know, you've got to envision that success and, and keep fighting for it. And I know um, Mr. D would agree with me on that one. I would, I would love to see that happen because it would be such mm. a beautiful completion of a circle. I really think it would be brilliant. Because we always talk about on the podcast, it's like anything that you do as an author, no matter how big or small you think it might be, the reason you've got to share what you're doing is because you're going to inspire somebody out there, someone who doesn't believe in themselves, someone who's had a bad day, someone who's had a crappy life, you know, yeah, to, to this yeah. point. It's what we do in our life, ultimately, is how we show up in the world and what we do in our struggles, ultimately, that will inspire other people to say, well, if they can do it, maybe I can as well. And I'd love to see that happen, Sarah, because it would be a a beautiful kind of closing of the circle with what I, you know. I think there's also there's an awful lot in in sort of talk it, it, when you talk about your ideas and you talk about your hopes and talk about your dreams and I know you know Mr. Say thinks this is woo woo but I think you're 100% right Mr. Say because I think it's you talk it and eventually it kind of brings it into being it manifests I do think there's something in that very much yeah and actually, Mark's Mark's definitely turned the stone. I mean, in I'm coming. Chats, I'm have... coming around to the idea. I'm coming around to the Yay! idea. I mean, you know. <laughs> and Sue, what about what about you in terms of in terms of? Are you actually working on a new novel right now? Yeah, uh, yes, because my publisher will kill me stone dead if I <laughs> if I don't. Um, yeah, I just signed another uh, two book deal with Bloomsbury for two more books, which was great. Uh, so I'm writing those right now, and then. We've got the devil adaptation to work on and there's a few other projects around. So yeah, it's good times. It's really nice. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That when you 
the, the the best thing about sort of having a book that does quite well is that all these other doors open up to you, all these other projects suddenly are available to you, and you've got that window to sort of walk through and sort of do as much as you possibly can do. So I'm in that at the moment. It's lovely, but it's just it's exhausting at the same time. But it's just a wonderful time. Absolutely. Is there one thing that you 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 hope for in the future? Is there something you've kind of got your sights on that you'd love to happen? One of your kind of bucket lists. Yeah, I'd quite like to win an Oscar. That would be great. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. Aiming low then. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little tiny gold statue. From what I understand, it's not even real gold. So it doesn't seem that too hard. And I've looked through the long list of people who've won Oscars, and a lot of them were terrible people. So I don't... <laughs> it's true. It's true story. So true I don't story. really understand how hard this can possibly be. <laughs> really? So... Promise us to come back on the show to show us if it is actual real gold. We can do some experimentations with it, maybe. And uh, yeah. after many years on the mantelpiece, if it fades, possibly that would be kind of interesting. Test. We could all try and bite into it and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, talking this about is real- chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> talking about real gold, Stu and I were talking the other day about writing as alchemy, weren't we, Stu? We were talking about you know one thing that Stu says that I found really interesting was that um, people are always curious about how a book is written, how it's done, and they're always that you know it makes the writer an object of curiosity. And um, I was uh, you described it as magic. I think turning words into books is kind of magic, and I I described it as alchemy. So maybe you can turn your books into not real gold by getting an Oscar, Stu. I would rather turn them into actual gold with actual. <laughs> I think I you are, you know, I think you're selling quite a few, you know, I think you'd be okay. It'd be better to shortcut it though, wouldn't it? To take up the entire <laughs> publication process and just write some words and then turn that into gold coins. So they can like, sell. Like, you can be the Rumpelstiltskin of the writing world, can't you? Rumpelstiltskin? Rumpelstiltskin of the writing world, that's what I want to be. <laughs> Okay, folks, I think we're going to wrap that up there. I th- um, and this has been just one of my favourite episodes. Uh, I think, you know, it, even after sort of, what, what were we, four and a half years into this, over 300, nearly 320-something episodes, uh, we are constantly surprised by, you know, the amazing journeys of the people that we speak to on this show. Uh, so thank you so much both to Sarah and Stu. Um, folks, if you want to get in touch, if you've been inspired by this episode, do get in touch. Drop us a line at bestsellerexperiment.com. You'll see a contact tab there. Drop us a line via email. We answer all of them. We're also on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram at bestsellerxp. Absolutely. And to Sarah and Stu, we know that this conversation is going to continue. We know that you're no doubt going to have many moments down the pub where you're going to share uh, and you know your stories and i think it's just it's such a heartwarming thing to to have been part of today and thank you so much for bringing your fun games and your laughter and, and light to this show because it's truly a brilliant story and just massive success to both of you ongoing and may you continue to both inspire each other and everyone else out in the world so thank you so much both of you that's really kind thank thanks mate i appreciate that excellent Bye, so, miss Moorhead. <laughs> bye Stuart be good <laughs> so it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye goodbye bye. goodbye